Okay, the time is 16.05. This is the fourth side of the tape with John Munden. John, you and Paul called and you were going to go over and talk to the family. 16.05 or 17.05? Oh, 17.05. Thank you. I was an hour off. Uh, reluctantly, Snedeker agreed to talk to us there in Chillicothe. We made plans to meet at a restaurant, and I can't remember the name of it. Just off the inner I-70. There at 197, whatever interstate that is, that goes into Chillicothe. We met there the next morning. We ate breakfast with Steve and Trudy and a dozen other relatives. Steve picked up the tab for everybody, and we excused ourselves and left everybody sitting there, except uh, Steve and Trudy and Paul and I, then walked over to the cash register, and Steve paid the ticket. And we said, you know, we're running kind of late, so we need to go, get on the interview. So we had made arrangements with the local people to use one of their interview rooms down at the local police station there in Chillicothe. And we told this to Steve, and he just went berserk and said, I've already rented a room here for us to talk in. We don't have to go down there. It was apparent he didn't want to go near a police station. And he tried every which way he could to worm out of that, and we wouldn't cancel it. We said, you know, we're not going to interview you in a motel room. We're going to do it at the police station where we have recording equipment if we need it, and paper and stuff. That's the way we conduct interviews. I also said, we'd like to talk to you separately. And he said, now I'll go down there. He said, this whole thing is very untasteful. I'm starting to get a little upset. You know, if you're going to talk to us, you're going to talk to us together. So we gave in and thought, you know, we better not push our luck. They might both tell us to go to hell. So we decided to talk to them collectively. Uh, the four of us went down. We talked for about three hours. I didn't learn anything that I already didn't know. I'm sure Paul did, because Paul was just getting in on the case. We left there, and uh, Paul and I decided that we was going to try to photograph the people as they came and went to the funeral the next day. It just so happened that one of the officers there knew somebody that lived right across the street from the funeral home and made arrangements for us to slip a video camera inside through a window. So we videoed all that, and that should be in my case. Uh, I don't think we learned anything from it, but we videoed it anyway. Uh, after the funeral, Paul and I came back to Greenfield that night or the next day, and I got that conversation on tape. Mary Jones, who is a sister of Steve's, called me and uh, thanked me for coming to the funeral and uh, being nice to the family and everything, and said, there's something that I'd like to tell you, but I don't want it to get back to Steve. And I assured her that it wouldn't. And to this day, it hasn't. Uh, she said Steve is... Steve likes you. Thinks you're a good investigator. But he... He's afraid of you, too. I said, why would he be afraid of me? She said, I don't know. But he's afraid of you. She said, maybe he has something to hide. I said, maybe he does. I said, why do you think he's afraid of me? She said, well, now you promise me you're not going to say anything to Steve. I said, no, no, I won't. She said, you called him a couple of days ago and made arrangements to come over and talk to him. At least, that's what he told us. And I said, that's true. That's why we were there yesterday. That night, she said Steve just walked around like a zombie. All afternoon and all night. I happened to walk in the room and he gave Bob, which is one of the Snedeker brothers, gave Bobby a bunch of money and said, 
if Munden keeps me, take this money and get hold of these three attorneys. And I made some comment. You know, that's almost a confession in itself, isn't it? And she said, well, I guess. I said, do you know how much money it was? She said, $20,000 in $100 bills. I said, how do you know it was that much? She said, well, after they were gone for about three hours, Bob started walking around the floor and said he'd become concerned. She said at that point, Bob did not know that I had overheard that conversation the night before about the transaction, and uh, I just made some remark to Bob. I said, you're walking the floor like an expectant father. He said, well, I just don't understand why they're taking that long talking to Steve and Trudy. And she said, well, I'm sure they got a lot to talk about. And he said, well, it shouldn't take that long. Steve was a little leery about going down there in the first place. She said, what do you mean leery? And he said, well, I'm not supposed to say anything, but he gave me $20,000 and I'm supposed to get a hold of three attorneys if they keep him. She said, why would they keep Stephen? He said, I don't know. I don't know whether to get a hold of them or not. And she said it was within 20 minutes after that that Stephen Trudy got back. She said, I don't know what it means, but I wanted you to know that. To this day, I don't know what it means. I've got a feeling on what it means, but I thought I should tell you that. If I could um, interject something here, is it possible that he was worried that you or somebody had found out that he was responsible for one of the two missing guys or something? Oh, I think that's exactly it. Yeah. And to be more specific, I think it's Chuck or uh, Tony Lambert. My personal opinion is, I don't think he had any direct involvement in his daughter's disappearance and subsequent death. I don't believe that he had anything to do with Chuck Smith's disappearance, but... So you don't think Steve had anything to do with Chuck's? No, I do not. I think Trudy did. I think that explains why she told me Steve doesn't have to know I'm asking for this phone number. There's no other reason why she should make that statement to me. It was Trudy that Chuck told the story to about what he saw. It wasn't Steve. Steve wasn't there. It was Trudy that was in my office wanting that phone number, not Steve. And when I asked Steve the first time, who is John Rogers... I believe that Steve has never heard of that name before. I don't think he's that good of an actor. Based on all those things, no, I don't think Steve had anything to do with Chuck Smith's disappearance. I think Trudy did. Because I think there's a possibility that Trudy killed Laura. And I'm getting off where I didn't want to talk at this point. But we can get into that a little bit later. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. I think that's exactly why Steve gave $20,000 to this brother. He thought maybe we had some information about somebody's disappearance, and the most logical one for me to think of would be Tony Lambert. And I think that's why he was so paranoid about talking with us. To this day, I have not approached Steve with what I learned from his sister, for a couple of reasons. Strategically, I don't think it was a good idea. Plus, I gave her my word that I wouldn't, because she tells me that she is afraid of her brother. She believes her brother has killed several people. She believes that her brother would kill her. And I'm not going to put her in that position until I can prove something. And Paul agrees with that. Uh, for the next several years, nothing unusual happened. Out of the ordinary. A lot of unusual things happened. 
but to my knowledge, nobody disappeared, uh, with one positive exception. In 1984, I think, I received a phone call from Steve Jr.'s ex-wife, and I didn't know they were divorced, but uh, I forget her first name. She told me, do you remember me? And I said, yes. She said, uh, I'd like to talk to you if I could. And I said, about what? She said, well, since we've been divorced, there's some things that maybe you ought to know. And I said, well, first of all, I didn't know you was divorced. I'm sorry to hear that. She said, well, you shouldn't be. That's the best thing that ever happened. She said, that family's fucking nuts. I said, well, I can't disagree with that. So I said, when and where do you want to talk? She said, well, I'm working for my family. They've got some small business in Indianapolis. Said I'm working here, so I can leave about any time. I don't want to talk around here. I said, do you want to come over to our place? And she said, yeah. So uh, I drove over and picked her up and brought her out here. I tape recorded the conversation. It lasted for about eight hours. I used up my year recorder that I use on the PSE, on the slow speed, and I had to change the tapes two or three times, but I can get about three hours out of a tape. It was during the conversation, and I had, uh, there was somebody else in the room with us, and I forget who it was, but most of the time, when I talk to a female, I always like to have another witness there, and this was no exception. Somebody was there, and it'll be on the tape. It was during that conversation that she told me she had an occasion to go through some of Steve's dresser drawers. Uh, she was there at the house, and they left, and she said, I've always been a little curious about some of Steve's activities, because he's always low profile and just does some strange things and lies. And uh, she said, so as soon as they left, I decided to, to look around the house a little bit. I said, did you see anything interesting? She said, well, and she called him Dad, I think. She said, Dad had some of uh, Laura's personal belongings in a drawer. She always called that Laura's drawer. Pictures and different things that I guess her father would keep of a dead daughter, I suppose. And uh, she said, so I started looking around in that drawer, and I found a man's wallet, a guy from Ohio, and she couldn't remember the name. But uh, she said, you know, there was credit cards in there and a bunch of stuff, and said, you know, I don't remember the name, and I didn't recognize the name when I heard it. And there was a picture of what I think was him in the wallet. And she says, I don't know why, but I think Steve has killed him. And I said, why do you think that? She said, well, I really don't know, but I just, why else would he have this man's wallet in that drawer with Laura's stuff and all this man's identification? And, you know, I've never heard of the name. I've been in the family for years, and, uh, you know, said Steve's always going places and coming back two or three days later. He's always got bunches of money and cash. He never talks about where he's been, and if you even question anything, he gets irate and upset. He's doing something and making a lot of money doing it, and there's not that much money in the waste oil business. She said maybe he's killing people. Maybe he's a contract killer. I don't know. But based on that, I asked Malcolm, who was a hypnotist, if he would hypnotize her. I called him in that night, I think, and he put her under hypnosis, and she came up with a first name that's, during the hypnosis, as seeing it on one of the credit cards, but couldn't come up with the last. And Malcolm thinks she was telling the truth. 
I don't know. But all we had was the first name, and nothing's unusual about the first name. But uh, that was probably the most interesting thing of that conversation. She talked about how sneaky Steve was, and uh, he was like that. Always would leave for two or three days at a time, and nobody would seem to know where he was going or when he was ever coming back. And he just stayed to himself, and he didn't like people, even the family, to ask questions about where he had been or why or anything. No details. And uh, she just wanted me to know that. She said, I really think he's just killing people. I think he gets paid to kill people. So she said, I think that's got something to do with Laura's disappearance. Somebody's paid him back. Well, you may be right. I don't know. I think that was 1984. From the time Laura disappeared until the summer of 86, I don't think there was a week went by that I didn't have some contact with either Trudy or Steve Snedeker on the phone. Either I would call them or, more than likely, they would call me. Sometimes a couple of times a week. Always wanted to know if there was any progress in the case, blah, blah, blah. In the summer of 86, the call stopped and I was working other cases, so I didn't, uh, it didn't really bother me that they wasn't calling me. Then I got a call from a Florida Department of Law Enforcement investigator. I think it's kind of like the FBI on the state level. I think it's like the criminal investigators for the Indiana State Police. All they do is criminal investigations. They don't do any other police work. His name was Bob Kinsey. He's an agent with the Florida Law Enforcement. And uh, he said, do you know Steve Snedeker? I said, yeah, I know Steve Snedeker. He said, well, I've been given a case to work on about his wife that's disappeared. I said, oh, shit. He says, is that, did I say something wrong? I said, no, but seems like there's a lot of people that disappear around Steve Snedeker. He said, well, I was told by Gertrude's father that you was an authority on this case and that I needed to get a hold of you before I even talked to Steve. And uh, I said, well, I'll tell you what I know. Uh, it's going to take some time. I talked to him for almost two hours long distance on the phone, and uh, told him basically the same thing I'm telling you, but I abbreviated a lot of it. And uh, he says, shit, I bet she's dead too then. I said, well, that would be my first guess. Don't really know why at this point but I think that you've got enough that you need to pick him up and talk to him. To my knowledge, Steve always refused to talk to him. He wouldn't cooperate. To this day, I don't think he's talked to Kinsey about his wife's disappearance. He has talked to the local sheriff's department detective in that county. His name is Lynn Wagner. W-A-G-O-N-E-R. What county is that, John? Uh, Volusia County or Lake County? I think it's Volusia County. Is it one of the cities? Tavares is the county seat. Tavares, Florida. Okay. Uh, Lynn Wagner's a detective there. I've had several conversations over the past two or three years with Lynn Wagner. Uh, he knows as much about this case, almost as much about the case as I do. I even made a trip down there. I had to go down on another, on Malcolm's case. And while I was there, myself and the prosecutor spent a day talking with Wagner about the case. And, uh, you know, he's convinced that Steve's dirty. He doesn't know what he's doing to get his money, but he knows he's making a lot of money. Uh, I've got another theory on that. That in addition to killing people, 
that uh, probably accounts for some of his money. But this is what I wanted to talk to Larry Lilling about. I assume that one of these days I'll be given that opportunity. Uh, but Steve, like I said, our communications was cut off in the summer of 86, as best I can remember it anyway. It was in, I think September, when I got the call from Kinsey, wanting to know what I knew about Snedeker. Kinsey and I decided that I should call Steve and see what story he would tell me, because we had a fairly good relationship all these years, and, uh, and ask him why he hadn't called, and this type of thing. I called Steve, and I got the runaround from some of the people that worked down there. It was apparent that Steve did not want to talk to John Munden at this point. But finally, I left a message, and said that I think it would be in your best interest that he return my call. And uh, so he called me back about five minutes later. Five minutes before that, he was out of state. But somehow, miraculously, they got a hold of him, and five minutes later, he called me. And he said, uh, or I said, I understand that Trudy is missing. He said, well, that's what people are saying. But, you know, she just left. She got another boyfriend, and she just left. I said, what do you mean, she just left? I said, tell me how she came up missing. He said, she's not missing. I said, well, she's not there, right? No. Do you know where she's at? Yeah. I said, where's she at? He said, well, she's in Tallahassee. I said, what's she doing in Tallahassee? He said, well, she got mixed up with some black people, and she's going with one of them. I said, come on, Steve. That's the truth. I says, how did this all come about? He said, well, we was going to go dancing one night. I don't know what night it was. We got into an argument because I had found some pictures of her and some black guy together making love. So rather than go on to dancing, we turned around. And I took her back home, and she got all of her stuff ready, and I took her to the airport, gave her some money, and said, I don't want to see you again. So I got off the phone, and trying to digest all this, this sounded as bizarre as everything else in this case. It didn't make sense to me that here's a man and woman that get into it over another person, a black person to boot, and he still goes to the trouble of taking her to the airport? Now, I don't believe that's going to happen. If they got into an argument, he's going to say get the fuck out of here, or he's going to leave one. But he chooses to take her to the airport, along with all her stuff? What Steve didn't know was that I had talked to Brenda the day before. She didn't take anything. Steve tells me she took everything. Brenda and Danny were living down there at the time. They moved up here about a month after that. As soon as they got up here, they got a hold of me, and we sat down and had a long talk. Well, Brenda... The first thing she said is, Dad killed Mom. I said, well, you know that very well could be. Why do you think that? She says, what did Dad tell you about the disappearance? I said, well, what did he tell you? And they told me the story that was just the opposite of what he told me. So I says, why do you think Steve killed Trudy? She said, well, I was at the house the night they left, and she said, I think that's probably the only thing that Dad told both of us that was consistent, that they left together. She said that happened because I was at the house. Said Mom carried a little gun, and she stuck it down in her bra as she went out the door. She looked at me like she was a little concerned, a look that I'd never seen Mom display before. And she said, it bothered me a little bit, 
but I didn't think too much about it until the next day when dad came into the office and mom wasn't with her, wasn't with him. And I said, well, tell me about him coming to the office the next day. She said, well, usually they would come into the office together and dad would go to his office and start making phone calls, but he always shut the door. This day he came in without mom and I uh, made some comment, where's mom? And she said, or he said, we'll talk about it later. And he went to his office and he shut the door. Said he stayed in there for about an hour and she was a little concerned because she didn't understand where her mom was. When she called the house, she wasn't there. So she knocked on her dad's office door and kind of walked on in like I did here, not waiting for a response. And her dad's sitting there crying. She says, I've never seen my dad cry before. And I said, Dad, what's wrong? And he said, your mother's left me. We're not going to see her again. And she said, what do you mean? He said, well, we got into an argument and uh, she took off to go live with her boyfriend. She said, mom don't have no boyfriend, dad. He said, yes, she does. She's got a bunch of them. And uh, she says, but you guys left to go dancing last night. He said, yeah, and I just kicked her out of the car and I ain't seen her since. Well, that's not what he told me. They turned around and came back, and she got all her stuff, and he took her to the airport. So there's two stories that are totally different. And uh, I said, what happened then? She said, well, I didn't know what to do. So Danny was, was out in the yard working there at the bulk plant, working on some trucks. So I went out there and talked to him, and she said I was scared. I didn't know what was going on. So she said, we basically just went home and didn't know what to do. And that night we went over and was going to talk to dad more and dad wasn't at home. And she said, mom had given me a key that dad didn't know about. So went in to see what stuff mom had taken because he said, if I remember right, she got out, he kicked her out of the car and somehow she got back to the house and got some stuff. All of her stuff was, uh, she said, we went into the bedroom. There was nothing. Everything. All of her stuff was still there, including her pocketbook. Mom would have taken her pocketbook if she had went any place. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'd think so. Then she started crying. I said, what's wrong, Brenda? She said, Mom's gun was laying on the floor beside the bed, and the room was just a little bit messed up. She said, do you want to know what I think? I said, yeah. I think they got into an argument right there, and there was a scuffle, and I think she, you know, that dad shot mom. I said, what did you do with the gun? She said, I left it lay right there because if I picked it up and dad found out about it, he'd kill me too. Brenda is convinced that her dad killed her mother. And if what she says is true, and I have no reason to disbelieve it, I agree with that. I gave this information to Lynn Wagner and based on that, he went out and he made several attempts to talk to Snediger. And Snediger kept putting him off. And on one occasion, he even had some attorney call and said, you know, unless you've got some paper for my client, don't bother him. We're not going to talk to you about anything. To my knowledge, that's where it stands right now. Any idea what he might have done with the body? Just a gut feeling, based on a statement that he made in my office on one of those mornings when he was eating his biscuits and gravy... Again, this is probably a couple of weeks after the investigation started in the middle part of August of 81. 
we were sitting there and I was doing some paperwork and uh, he said, what would you do with a body if you, you know, he was talking about Laura. He said, if somebody did kill her, what would they do with her body? He was almost teary eyed. And it was obvious that like any father who's concerned if his daughter was dead, that he wanted his daughter to be in a proper place instead of just lying out someplace. That's the impression I got from him. And to this day, I still believe that. I don't believe he had anything to do directly with his daughter's death. I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention to him because I was trying to do some paperwork on that case. But it struck me kind of odd when I looked up and he was... He still had biscuits and gravy on his fork and it was dripping. And he looked at me and says, Do you know where a good place to get rid of a body would be? And he put his fork down. I says, Where? He said, what would happen if you flew out over the gulf in an airplane and you got several miles out and dumped somebody out? What would happen to the body? I said, well, I suppose the sharks would eat it. And he said, that's what I thought. My gut feeling is that's probably what happened to Tony and it may be what happened to his wife. And it's only a gut feeling on what he said that day. You know, they both may be alive in Las Vegas someplace, but that's what I think. Other than that, I think it, in a nutshell, is the case. Okay, I'm going to turn the tape off here for a minute. The time is 17.32 hours. Time's now 17.46. We have had off-the-tape conversations. We're going to go to a fifth side of the tape. Put a new tape in this thing. Okay, today's date is September 15th. This will be the fifth side of the tape for John Munden. Time is 17.52 hours. John, we, um, I had, I think we were, I think when we ended we were going to talk about the other Tony, Tony McCullough. Right. The, uh, the other Tony, besides Tony Lambert, is a Tony McCullough, who at the time lived in Newcastle. Uh, Tony McCullough seems to be a well-educated person. He has a college degree in chemistry. Uh, he's worked for several different chemical companies. And, uh... He met Tony Lambert uh, while he, Tony McCullough, worked at Chrysler. If I remember right, Tony Lambert was selling chemicals for an outfit out of Indianapolis to Chrysler there in Newcastle. And that's how the two became acquainted, because he was selling chemicals that McCullough was using in the lab there at Chrysler. Uh, Somehow they got teamed up and learned that Steve Snediger was trying to sell a waste oil business. And they learned about that because Steve Snediger was picking up waste oil at Chrysler and, by his own admission, driving around the corner and taking it back to Chrysler, paying the right people at Chrysler to buy the oil back to be used in the furnaces up there and at times would even add water to it. He admits that. He admitted that to Malcolm and myself. But that's how we got to meet the two Tonys because his company was picking up waste oil and or selling waste oil back to Chrysler. Some of the time it was theirs. Sometimes it was somebody else's. They tried to work out an agreement, and both Steve's story and McCullough's are consistent that uh, they agreed on the price. And I think it was $200,000 that Steve wanted for the waste oil business, which included the customers and the inventory and the property down there on Osage Street. As I understand it, the week the deal was supposed to be consummated, the Greenfield Bank declined the loan at the last minute because Steve Snediger would not open his books up, and they just wasn't ready to hand out $200,000 without seeing some books. And they didn't have enough collateral put up, 
so they chose not to loan the money. According to Steve, this upset the two Tonys, and he thinks that's why, that one of them may have had something to do with his daughter's disappearance. They got mad at him because they couldn't get the money? They got mad at the bank, but more importantly, they got mad at Steve because Steve would not open his books up. And according to McCullough, it's obvious the reason he wouldn't open his books up, because he wasn't paying the right taxes. That's what McCullough told me. But he said, uh, maybe it was meant to be that we not buy it. Maybe that was the best thing that ever happened. From the time Tony Lambert disappeared to 1986, when I last had regular contact with Steve, he was always telling Paul Weiler or myself, if Tony Lambert is involved in Laura's disappearance and death, then Tony McCullough is involved too. He was so obsessed with that idea that in 1983, he practically demanded that we run McCullough on polygraph. And we gave in and set it up. We took him over to Indianapolis Post and ran him, and he passed. Now, there's no doubt in my mind, or Paul's mind, that he had nothing to do with Laura's disappearance and subsequent death. But Steve even accused the state police of dummying the charts and covering it up, said, you know he's involved. The police are just covering it up because they, you know, they're getting money from McCullough. Well, that kind of upset Paul and myself, needless to say, but neither one of us believed that he had anything to do with it. I received a phone call in 1985. I don't know what month, but I'm sure of the year. Uh, Steve called me and said, somebody's trying to kill him. And I said, how do you know somebody's trying to kill you? He said, I went out to open the gates to the oil plant today, and somebody took a shot at me. He said, I got a plate number. And he said, uh, I hired some private investigators, and they found out who the car belongs to. It belongs to a guy named Woody Lockman in North Carolina. And they found out he's a professional hitman. And, uh, supposedly... He calls you from Florida. Mm-hmm, and tells me this. And, uh, he said the private investigator found out that this hitman is... His father is a retired federal judge there in North Carolina. And that's how he gets by with a bunch of stuff, because he's got the right connections. I said, Steve, this whole thing sounds far-fetched. He said, well, I just want you to know if anything happens to me where to start looking, because Woody Lockman is a hitman, and somebody paid him $20,000 to kill me, and I'm going to find out who. I said, well, if you do call me back, I kind of made light of the situation. About a week later, he calls me back and says, it's that fucking McCullough. He paid $20,000 to have me killed. Paid this Woody Lockman. I said, how do you know? He said, my private investigator found out. I said, I need to talk to him. He said, I'm not going to let you do that. I just want you to know what's going on. So, I talked to Lynn Wagner, and he kind of laughs it off too. And I think he went out and took a report from Steve. That's on file that he had been shot at. But Steve didn't give him as much information as he gave me. But he didn't know Wagner as well either. So I can halfway understand that. Uh, I basically said, so what? And never done anything with the information. I couldn't do anything if I wanted to anyway. I think it was a few months after that, I get a phone call one night from Sheriff Gilling. And it was on a Sunday night. He said, have you stirred the worms again on the Snedeger case? And I said, not recently. Why? He said, well, I just got a phone call from Tony McCullough, and he's trying to get a hold of you, and you've got an unlisted number. I want you to call him and find out what's going on, because this guy says somebody is trying to kill him. I said, okay. 
So he gave me his number. I knew it was a Newcastle number, but I could recognize it was not his house number. And come to find out, it was his son Mike, who I'd talked to, but I'd never met. His father and mother was over at his apartment, and they were scared. So I called, and uh, he told me that he was thinking about changing jobs, and they had put their house on the market for sale. There in Newcastle. Got a real nice home, and uh, he was taking a shower the day before, which would have been a Saturday, and they were going to go out and eat. And a guy came to the door and said he had seen the sign out in the yard, house was for sale, and started asking questions about the house. And uh, he said, my wife talked to him. I was in the shower. But some of the questions he asked didn't have a whole lot to do with the house, but had more to do with my personal life. And because he knew where I worked, the way he said it, he kind of blurted it out without thinking, like, like he realized that he had made a mistake. And uh, that night when we got back from eating, the same guy called on the phone and said, I'm so-and-so. My name's Gary Stafford. He said, uh, I'm from New York, and I get paid to kill people. He said, I was in your house earlier today. And he knew he was talking straight shit then, because his wife said, there's something ain't right here. He described the house, and he said, there's no doubt he was in my house today. And he said, I've been paid. A guy in Florida paid me. Just paid me $20,000 to kill you. I get half now, and half when the job's done. But he says, I don't want to kill you. And he says, well, I thank you for that. And uh, he said, uh, if you will give me some money and lay low for a few weeks, I will report you dead to the person, and I'll get my money, and you save your life, and we're all happy. He says, name the price. And he started out with like 5000 I think, or maybe it was 2000 I don't know. He says, I want you to stay in the house... I don't want you to leave. Uh, I don't want you to call the police. And you just wait right there until you hear from me in a little bit. So he said he got off the phone, called his son Mike, and told him that something's going on. I may be over in a little bit, but don't ask any questions. But if you see us pull up, just let us in the house real quick. And I need to make some phone calls to the Hancock County Sheriff's Department. He said, what's going on? He said, I can't talk to you now. Said he hung up the phone. Stafford called him back and said, I told you not to call anybody. He said, how did you know I called anybody? So he said, I just left your house. I know you used the phone. I know you called your son Mike. He says, now I'm getting real scared because this guy knows more about myself than I know. So he said, I didn't know whether to call the local police to do or to stay there or do what. So he said, I went to straight to Mike's apartment. And I tried to get a hold of you because you're the only one that's ever been able to help me in this whole situation. I said, I haven't been able to help you. All we done was clear you on a polygraph. He said, I think it's Steve Snediger. I said, well, from what you told me, I would tend to agree with you. You know, a guy from Florida, uh, he mentioned this, this Gary Stafford mentioned you killed his daughter and things like that. Everything pointed to Steve Snediger. There's no doubt in my mind that's who it was. So he called Nick. Nick called me at home. I called him back, and I said, Stay right there, Tony. I need to call the sheriff back, and I'll call you right back. I will have a Newcastle car come by there, because I don't know what's going on, but there's obviously something wrong here. I hung up. I called Nick back, and I told him real quick. I said, Nick, I don't have time to explain the whole thing, because we may have a major problem 
before the night's over with. He said, I don't know what you're talking about, but I'll be there. From the time I hung up from talking to McCullough at Mike's apartment till the time I called him back couldn't have been over 30 seconds. Because I was real brief with the sheriff, and uh, he had enough faith in me that, you know, you didn't have to explain everything. I called back, and he says, Gary Stafford called and said, I told you not to call the police. He said, he not only knew I made a phone call, but who I talked to. And he said, I think he may have even mentioned your name, Munden. I said, hey, I don't know what's going on, but what I want you to do right now is get in the car, you and your wife, and go straight to the sheriff's office. And if you get stopped, just keep going, because I will call the local people and tell them that you're coming through, not to stop the car. I said, you go straight to the sheriff's office and don't talk to anybody. They met me down here and told us in more detail about this Gary Stafford. And uh, Nick made arrangements for him to spend the night in a motel in Indianapolis under guard. Now, I have no idea where they went, and I didn't want to know. We contacted the FBI, and uh, we had a couple of meetings. Uh, Malcolm was in on it, and uh, Malcolm was chief deputy at the time. He had stepped down as sheriff because Nick had run and won the election, but we all worked on it. They set telephones up, and uh, this Stafford called back, and he kept raising the ante. I think he got up to about 7000 and uh, he told Lambert to wire the money to a Western Union, uh, I think, I forget the county, I think Rye, New York. He said, this is a town where I don't live, but it's close by, and uh, I'll be there to pick the money up. Well, we had FBI agents there, and he showed up. He used his right name, and uh, they made the arrest. He had four automatic weapons on him. He was a hired killer. He cooperated, I think probably truthful with the FBI, up to the point where he told the police that Steve paid to kill. I think Steve offered him money to find out what he could. And it's another gut feeling. I think Stafford was just trying to play both ends against them to get everything he could. I think he put the shit in the game by saying this guy wants you dead. Because if he did, Stafford would have killed him because that's what he got paid to do. Hell, he was so bold that he advertised his services in these Soldier of Fortune magazines. Have gun, will travel. Uh, I thought this was only in the movies. But, uh, they really do that shit. You know, of course, I'm a naive country detective from Greenfield. But they advertise in national magazines. I believe Snedeker paid him. And Steve told me that. And he told the FBI. And he may have taken a polygraph. I'm not sure down there in Florida. Steve says, yeah, I paid him to do some detective work for me, but not to kill anybody. If he's telling that, he's lying. Well, the FBI tends to agree with that. They think Stafford saw a way to make some more money. Snedeker probably gave him two or three thousand to do some work, and he was going to make seventy-five hundred from this guy, saying that this guy wants you dead. But if you'll give me seventy-five hundred, I won't kill you. So he was charged and pled guilty to extortion and done some time in Terre Haute. So that's the deal behind... How did, how did he know about the phone calls? Stafford? I have no idea. I never talked to the man. Who from the FBI worked this? Jack Osborne. Oh, okay. We know Jack. We've talked to Jack a couple times. Is Tony still around, McCullough? The last time I had talked with McCullough was after Trudy disappeared 
because I wanted to inform him of that. He was living in Indianapolis. He's working for another chemical company out of Chicago, but he runs a business out of his house. That's his office. He travels around a lot, but you know he's convinced that Steve killed Lambert, and he's equally convinced that he killed his wife. He doesn't know about Smith. I mean, he knows about Smith being gone, but he doesn't know one way or another whether Steve was involved or Trudy was involved. Uh, for what it means, back in, uh, it was after me and my first wife separated. I was living in an apartment at the Heritage Estates, just north of town, here on Nine. So it would have had to have been after June of 82. I think it was in, it was in the fall, but maybe this time of year. I think it was a little bit later in 82. I had been working a lot of hours on the Morris case, and I can't remember now what had come up, but something came up and I spent about four days. I had worked some long hours on the Morris case. The only other cases I was working on was a few piddly burglaries. And uh, I left the jail about 8.30 that night, and I was supposed to, that's when I was going with Nevis. I was supposed to go to her house for supper, and... Uh, I wanted to stop and freshen up a little bit and take a shit. And uh, I opened the door to the apartment and walked in, and the phone rang, just as soon as I walked in the door. It wasn't ringing before, because I could have heard it while I was unlocking the door. But as soon as I get in, then shut the door, the phone rang. And the person on the other end was a man's voice, who I had never heard before, says this, Munden, quit investigating this case, and hung up. I thought, what the fuck? You know, I've been threatened a lot, but I've never heard that before. The only thing I'd been working on that week, and this was like on a Thursday or a Friday night, was the Laura Morris case, working a lot of hours on it. So I was concerned about it. I decided to go over to the house and give her a reason why I wasn't going to come over, and I was going to go back to the jail and do some work. I walked out of the door and down at the end of the lane which is about an eighth of a mile. I saw a car down there with parking lights on, but it could have been parked at one of the houses, because there's a bunch of duplex doubles. I get in my car and backed out. It was an unmarked squad car, and a green Dodge Diplomat. I turned my headlights on, and I pulled out to get out to nine, and I look in my rearview mirror, and this car turned its headlights on, and it started coming toward me. Well, still, you know, I'm not real concerned about the car because there's 40 apartments in that complex. So I pull out on 9 and turn left to go north to Cranberry, which is about an eighth of a mile north of me. This car pulls out and goes the same way. I pull into Cranberry, the car's still behind. Well, I started becoming a little more concerned because of this phone call, so I didn't want to put them in any jeopardy, so I drove down to the cul-de-sac and around the circle, and I was not going to stop there. And just as I turn to come back out, this car turns its headlights off. And you know it's dark back in the edition, so I couldn't. I didn't know really where the car was parked. So I went ahead and came back out. And I saw the car, because that car was not there when I pulled in. It's only like 15 seconds. So it had to be that car. So I slowed down. And I didn't get out. But I almost stopped. And I couldn't see anybody in it. But I think it was probably somebody laying over in the seat but it was black, dark. I couldn't tell. I was only 90% sure that was the car that had followed me into the addition, 
So as soon as I got past him and got about an eighth of a mile away, I see the lights come on. He turns around and comes right behind me again. So I go north on nine and uh, I thought, well, we're going to have some fun here. So I kick it in the ass and I get up past maximum. I'm going about 110 and I lose the car. I think the guy turns because I, I started going dark because Maxwell is lit up. At the north end, there's no houses to speak of, so I turned my headlights off. I had hit my switch to turn off my brake light. I was going to turn around and try and get the car stopped. Well, he disappeared. I never did find out who it was. There's no doubt in my mind that car was either going to do something to me that night or find out where I was going or whatever. And I don't think it was related to the Linder case because I wasn't working on the case then. The only thing I was working on of any importance was the Morris case. And uh, it was a General Motors product. Is the only, a big car. It wasn't a small car. So I went back to the jail and I called Neavis on the phone. And she was mad because I was supposed to have been there about a half hour before that. I told her something had come up and, of course, girlfriend at the time, she didn't understand that. But I said, I'll explain it to you later. So I waited about a week and I finally told her because I didn't want to scare her. I don't know who it was, but it bothered me that just as soon as I walked in, and I believe that this car had an antenna on the back, because I first thought it was a squad car when I made the turn around, but then I, it wasn't a squad car. But when I look back on it, I think this person may have had a telephone in his car. But uh, just as soon as I got in and shut the door, the phone rang. He said, Munden, quit investigating this case, and hung up. It was not Steve Snedeker. I do know that. Okay. And that was in 82? Fall of 82. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't know what it means or anything, but I thought I would mention it. I'll plan it. A-B-P-L-A-N-A-L-P. That's the way they spell it down home? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he lived in the Greenwood area. Went to school with uh, Bryce. Was a friend of Bryce's. Uh, socialized with uh, Laura and Bryce. The wives knew each other, played cards together. After the divorce, Laura started spending a lot of time at Dave's apartment while Cindy Appenalp was working for an insurance company. Uh, and again, depended who you asked. They were having their fling, and while Cindy was working there, they were home smoking and playing. Uh, on one occasion, Laura told a girlfriend of hers that Dave was furnishing her with quaaludes and black beauties. Any quantity that she wanted. She said Laura came over to the house one day, and she was stoned out of her mind. She wouldn't tell the guy's name, but said, it's the guy who helped me move out of Greenfield. Well, we already knew that was Dave Appenalp. Uh, we talked to a guy named Robert Frost, who, and I forget now how we got onto him. It was through a guy named Chuck Clear, who was part of, wanted to be part of the motorcycle gang, but he just couldn't cut the mustard but he wanted everybody to believe that he was. And he portrayed that image, but he wasn't. He just wanted people to believe that. Uh, he told us that we should talk to Robert Frost. So we talked to Frost. And Frost had an interesting statement. He said that one night prior to Laura's disappearance, and he knew Laura too, because they all went to school down at Whiteland and Greenwood together, Dave Aplanop was doing some house burglaries, 
and he liked to break in houses while the people were there. The state police and the Speedway police think that Applinalp and, well, they know that Applinalp and Ricky Akers were doing burglaries together. And that was Ricky Akers' M.O. He would break in and rape the woman, tie her up and rape her, and make the husband watch, and then burglarize the house and leave. According to Robert Frost, Applinalp was doing that too. And he was probably right because that's what the state police in our outfit thought too. He said that one night prior to her disappearance, he was over at Applinalp's and they were smoking some dope. And Applinalp says, I want you to go with me to Greenfield to break in a house. He says, Greenfield? Why Greenfield? He said, well, that's where Laura lives. He said, Laura Morris? He said, yeah, her and her husband separated and I've been out to the house to help her move some of her stuff in, and there's a lot of good stuff in that house. He said, uh, well, okay, when do you want to do it? He said, I want to do it when she's there. He said, why would you want to do it when she's there? Said she knows both of us. What are we going to do if she identifies us? He said, well, she probably will, because you're right, she knows us. He said, well, then it's stupid to go there and do it while she's there. Why don't we do it when she's not there? He said, I want to do it when she's there. And he said, man, what are you going to do if she identifies? He said, then I'll kill her. He said, hey now, I'll break into that house, but I ain't going to kill anybody. So he claims that he and Applinalp went out there and cased the house one night, and we'd run him on polygraph, and he passed. But he's also fucked up mentally. I can't think of the analyst's name now. He wasn't real comfortable with the charts because of this guy's mentality, but uh, he says, I think he's probably telling the truth. So, based on that, Paul and I started working on Applinalp again and tracked him to Atlanta, Georgia. Talked to some people there working on a possible suspect in a rape-murder case in the laundromat there in Atlanta, in Fulton County, and found out that he had moved to Florida, where he was again working as a painter for his father, who had a small painting company down there which is only about 40 miles from where Steve lived. And Steve knew where he lived because Steve said he had some private investigators working on it. But he never came up missing, so I don't think Steve ever really believed that Applinalp had anything with his daughter. If he had of, I think he'd be dead today. I think he's very much alive today. At least he was in 1985 or 6 when I last talked to him. Did you ever discuss this with him? Yeah, we went. We went down there and uh, talked to Applinalp for a couple hours, and he refused to take another polygraph test. He said, I took one of your fucking polygraph tests, which he did. Uh, he said, I took one of your fucking voice tests, and I ain't taking no more tests, so get fucked. So he had taken a test concerning Laura? Yes. Okay, but he was a friend of Ricky Dean Akers that we'd also talked about. Right. They had all just known each other through school? Mm-hmm. And you said that you were never able to verify that Ricky Dean Akers had any direct connection to Laura after school? No. Okay, I want to turn this tape over. Times 1821. Okay, this is side six of the tape with John Munden. Time is 1821. Let's talk a few minutes about Dave Corbin. Uh, Dave Corbin is a former employee of Snedeker's waste oil business. Um, like a lot of people's pictures we showed to Smith, 
It's not him because Smith knew Corbin because they worked together. So he was not the person in the truck. But he matched the description probably closer than anybody. But uh, he was not the one, according to Smith, that was in the truck that day. Um, During an interview that I had with Winston Roberts, who was a week-long boyfriend of Laura's just prior to her disappearance, he said that Laura had related a story to him that he thought was worth mentioning to us, and he did. Uh, He said that one night when they were out at Patches, I think, over on Shadeland having some drinks, uh, Laura said that something strange had happened the night before, and he said, what do you mean? And she said, Dave, she heard something outside her house there on Shadeland, and uh, said she opened the door, and Dave was standing outside in the driveway. And she said, what are you doing here? He said, I'm just out taking a walk. And I said, what? What was said after that? He said, somebody came up to the table and bought us a drink, and we never talked any more about it. But he said, I wanted you to know that. I don't know who this Dave is. You know, this guy's from Indianapolis. He don't know Dave Applenalp. He doesn't know Dave Corbin. But logistically, it would seem that it would have to be one of those two Daves that she was probably in reference to. But it could have been a Dave Smith, for all we know. Both Daves have denied being out there at nighttime. But if you'll remember, Dave Corbin, according to Robert Frost, was only out there one night, casing it out. But the times are not consistent. They are several months or several weeks apart. It would make more sense if Laura asked this Dave, whoever this Dave is, what are you doing? To me, if it was Dave Applenalp from Greenwood, which is 45 minutes away, it wouldn't make sense that he says, I'm out taking a walk. However, it would make, to me, it would make more sense that if it's one of the two Daves, that it would be Dave Corbin, because he lives here in Greenfield, and did at the time. Both Daves have denied that, however. Uh, Dave Corbin was run on polygraph, and his tests were inconclusive. Dave Corbin has got some sexual hang-ups, according to this wife. Uh, I've talked to some psychologists about some of Dave's sexual problems, and at IUPUI, and they tell me that this is the type of person that that rapes and kills. Uh, I think, but there's no way to tell. I think that she has been involved with sex prior to her death, and I say that based on the way her clothing was found. Was she sexually promiscuous? Okay, Jenny's just going to jump in here as herself for a minute. Um, I redacted a few lines here that were too personal in nature to share as far as I'm concerned, and they are not necessary to your understanding of this case. Suffice to say, John Munden is describing Laura's personal sexual preferences, and they have zero relevance to what we're discussing. I will note that his facts are incorrect regarding Winston. Laura met him on a Monday. They didn't go out until Wednesday. They went out that night, Thursday night, and Friday night, not Saturday. And they did not have sex on every single one of those nights. While I do believe that there is a possibility that a sexual assault could have occurred in this case, nothing about Laura's sexual preferences or who she was dating or sleeping with in the week before her murder would have any bearing on her being raped, if that occurred. Also, I need to mention that when Munden was discussing Dave L. Planip and Dave Corbin, He mistook facts relating to one with the other. First, in the handwritten notes from the Indiana State Police detective related to Winston's interview, 
he literally told police El Planip's full name. That's right there in the detective notes, so there would be no confusion as to which Dave that Winston was speaking about. Second, Munden said, according to Frost, that Dave Corbin was supposedly out there one night. That is also inaccurate. According to Frost, it was Al Planip out there casing the Snedeker home in the days leading up to her going missing. Third, Munden says the times are not consistent because they're several months or weeks apart. That is also inaccurate. According to Winston and Frost, Al Planip was there in that week leading up to her murder, and Frost said in his police interview that the night Laura went missing that exact night, Al Planip had planned to do it. So, John Munden did make multiple misrepresentations to state police here, as well as confused the details of two people, one being a prime suspect in this case. Do you have anybody that refused a polygraph? No. Okay. Let's talk a few minutes about Bryce, the ex-husband. Bryce denies coming down here that night. Uh, he doesn't pull any punches on the fact that he does not like the Snedeker family. He blames Steve and Trudy both for breaking up his marriage. He blames her, Laura, for his brother's death. And by saying that, supposedly they're... When they lived in East Greenfield in 1980, they had a party and Bryce's younger brother drove down from Goshen to attend the party. And he was drinking and smoking marijuana at the party. And Bryce said he wasn't in any shape to drive and I asked him to stay all night. And Laura got mad and said, I don't want him staying all night. And he said, hey, I don't want to cause any problems. So he got in his Jeep and left. On the way home, he had a wreck and died in the wreck. It upset Bryce so much, and several people, including his mother, told us this. It upset him so much that he sat at his brother's grave every day for four or five hours. He lost two jobs over that. He, he was so hurt over his brother's death and felt so guilty and he sat there at his brother's grave for several days and cried. And uh, according to a lot of people that I talked to, on more than one occasion, Bryce would get into an argument with her and blame her for his brother's death. So I guess what I'm building is some possible motive on Bryce's part that he would kill his ex-wife. Another motive is, is custody of the child. With her out of the way, he had complete control of the child. Uh, a possible scenario is that they had a conversation that night and uh, maybe he agreed to come down here. Or maybe he didn't agree to come down. But maybe she said, okay, I'm going to load the truck up and uh, I'll meet you up there or something. And him, knowing that his other girlfriend's there, and you know he can't have Lover's Triangle there that night, has to come down here and ward her off, so to speak. He comes down here, they get into it, and he does something stupid to her. Was he ever asked to take a polygraph? Yes, and he refused. He refused? Yeah, I forgot. Did anybody ever check if his girlfriend was an alibi for the night? Uh, Bryce's girlfriend's name was Sandra Palmer. We'll go ahead and talk about her now. I interviewed her initially, and she was reluctant to talk to me. Fact is, she would not talk to me without an attorney. And uh, I told her that I was not going to talk to her with an attorney because she was not a suspect. I was only trying to verify his whereabouts that night. And I said, I'm not going to talk to you with an attorney. If an attorney wants to ask you some questions, that's fine. He can sit outside. I'm not going to talk to you with an attorney. 
Now, if you become a suspect and I read you your rights, then the attorney can come in. But I'm only talking to you about somebody else. So you don't need no attorney, and I'm not going to have an attorney. So the attorney and I argued for about 10 minutes. He finally said, okay, go ahead and answer his questions. I'll be outside. So she answered my questions, and she basically told me about what he did. But it always bothered me that was so concerned about an attorney. Uh, in 1984, Paul had left the state police at this time. I had got the Shelby County prosecutor and the Hancock County prosecutor both to agree to give her complete immunity from prosecution, even if she was involved in that death, as long as she wasn't the one that actually killed her, even if she helped set it up. They both agreed that they would give her immunity. They both wrote letters. I called her on the phone and told her I needed to talk to her, and reluctantly she said okay. Because she had separated from Bryce, and I thought, now's the time to talk to her. They never did get married, but I had heard through some of the family that Bryce and Sandra were on the outs. This is why I went to the prosecutors at this time. I thought, now's the time to strike. Reluctantly, she agreed to talk to me. I got both of those letters of immunity, along with the grand jury subpoena, just in case she started pissing backwards. I was going to go ahead and serve her with the grand jury subpoena in Hancock County. Malcolm and I drove up there. Paul Weiler had to be in South Bend that day anyway, so there was only about 30 miles, and he said, hey, I wouldn't mind going with you. We got up there, and she had a thousand reasons why she couldn't talk right then. But she said, I'll talk to you in the morning. She says, I would like to talk to you. Uh, we talked about spending the night, and we decided that we'd come back and go up the next morning. Or, I'm sorry, this was on a Friday. She said that she would talk to us Monday, that she had a busy weekend and it might take some time, and she was running short on time and asked us if we could come back Monday. We said we would because this was the first time, you know, she was really ready to talk to us. And I felt real good about it. So did Malcolm and Paul. We got back and we had another homicide. A little 11-year-old girl was found killed out here. And I got on that and I never did get a hold of her again for about six months. Now she doesn't want to talk again. So I think there is a possibility that she was going to blow his alibi. Maybe not. I don't know. But uh, now I can't get the prosecutor, Terry Snow, to give me the same deal. To give her immunity from prosecution. He says, fuck her. I ain't going to do that. So there ain't no sense talking to her without it. If she knows something, she ain't going to talk to me. So that's all there is. She's still up in South Bend? Hell. It was 1985 since I talked to her. I don't know. Sure. That's interesting. That Paul and Malcolm and I were all excited about that. Then we had this other homicide come up and never got back to it. Yeah, matter of priority, so. Okay, you had another thing there, John, the 25000 $25,000. Sometime after it all started, I'm not sure chronologically when it occurred, but Steve, not Trudy, but Steve came up to me teary-eyed one day and said, we're not getting any place. I said, yeah, we're not. We're eliminating a lot of things, but so, yeah. You've got to look at it more optimistically, Steve. We've eliminated some people. And then I thought to myself, I shouldn't have said that because I think he has eliminated some people. But uh, I said, yeah, 
I think we're getting someplace. He said, do you think if I offered a nice reward, it might, if somebody knows something, they might do something? I said, well, I suppose that's, that's up to you. He said, well, how do I go about it? So I called Tom Cohn, our department attorney, and told him that uh, Tom actually wrote the thing that appeared in the paper, and uh, there's a copy of it in my box of stuff on this case, and it basically said $25,000 reward for the person, for any person who knows about the whereabouts of my daughter, whether she's dead or alive and uh, payable by Stephen and Gertrude Snedeker, for, you know, if you have any information, contact Snedeker, Munden of the Sheriff's Department, blah, 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 the person that found her did not see that in the paper, but I was real quick to tell that, hey, you may have just made $25,000, and he seemed elated. And uh, this poor old farmer down at Shelby County, the hired hand is actually the one that found her, so he is the one that legally would be entitled to the money, not the farmer whose ground it was on, because the papers said the person with the information about the whereabouts of our daughter, whether the latter is dead or alive, so I told him, you need to get a hold of Steve Snedeker, because I think he may owe you $25,000. And, uh... You told the hired hand this? Mm-hmm. As of a year ago, the hired hand still had not been able to contact Steve Snedeker, or to get his money. I called, well, this guy called me about a year ago and said, uh, can you help me get my money? The guy's name is Phil Bennett. He's the person that found Laura. I said, you haven't been paid yet? because Steve had told me he had paid the guy. And he said, no, I can't get a hold of the guy. So I called Steve back, and uh, no, I didn't. I didn't call Steve back. I told Danny, the next time you see Steve, tell him that this guy is still wanting his money. And Steve told Danny the same thing. I've already paid the guy. Fuck him. I don't think the guy's ever got his money. That's been about a year ago. Maybe a year and a half ago. You think he just reneged? I suppose. But, you know, there's no doubt in my mind, if you've got an attorney, you could get that money. Because it was published in the paper, and an attorney wrote, drafted it, it's legal. There's no doubt in my mind. But, uh, it might be better that the guy not. Hell, he might come up dead. I don't know. I'll turn the tape off here for a minute. Time is 1842. Oh, yeah, um, that's going to be the end of the tape. Stay tuned.